Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. We'll read this passage responsively. That means I'll read verse 1, you'll join me on verse 2, and we'll alternate like that all the way through verse number 6. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Here we go. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinaham the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And let's pray, and then we'll begin the sermon. Father, we sure do need you today. Lord, so many times I've asked you, but never once that I ask you that I could preach a good sermon. Never once did I ask you to be articulate other than that your people would understand. But Lord, I do ask that you'd help me to convey a great truth today. Sermon's kind of like a greasy wrench that needs to be used and adjusted. It's not a showpiece that we put in a museum. It's, it's a tool that we use to help our lives. So help us to get the truth today. Change us, mold us, and make us what you want because of that truth. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me catch you up where we are in Scripture to get you the the foundation, and then we're going to jump right into the sermon. David is at war. He is conquering as he goes. This is the, the King David that is the man after God's own heart. This is the warrior, the very one that God used to kill Goliath as a teenager. Now he is becoming king and then set up his throne and he's conquering the, the people out of Israel that should no longer be there. And uh, you have to understand they've been fighting and fighting and fighting. They get to a certain point, a place called Ziklag, and they send for their families because they're a bit far from home and they want their families near. They had conquered Ziklag And they were taking it over and they said, look, you can bring them here. We can house them. We can fight from here and go farther. And this way you get to spend time with your family and we get the business done. The Malachites, while David and the men are out at war, come in from the other end and they steal the women and the children that are the families of the soldiers that are fighting with David. And then they take the city and turn it on fire and burn the entire city to the ground. The soldiers begin to come back. Can you imagine as they come back towards town and see the smoke rising? They're wondering, was it my house? 
how many people's homes were burnt. When they get there, it was every one of them. Their families are gone. They don't see any bodies there, so they know someone has come in and stolen them. The Bible says that they began to weep until they could weep no more. Have you ever been to the place where you cried so much you just didn't think you could cry anymore? I've been there many a time. These soldiers are not only hot and tired, but now their families have been taken away. Will they ever see their wife again? Will they ever see their children again? Can you imagine what these men were facing? Had their wives been violated? Had their daughters been violated? Who had taken them? They begin to get so upset that we read in verse number 6 that the men began talking about stoning David. That doesn't mean going out and getting drunk. That means picking up big rocks and throwing them at him till he kills him. Bashing his brains out. When you get to the point where you're ready to do that, you're in trouble. Now the Bible says, and David was greatly distressed. Can you understand why the king was a little bit stressed? You see, not only had his wives and children been taken away, But the families of every man that's with him that they've been in battle with have been taken away. All their belongings there in Ziklag have been burnt to the ground or stolen. And now your very own loyal people are talking about killing you. I think that would bring the stress level up a little bit, wouldn't you? I can see why David would feel a little pressure. Let me make a statement here. The distress that we put ourselves under today amazes me. (laughs) Uh, To our guests, I, I sometimes have a hard time explaining myself, so hang on. This generation is a bunch of wimps and softies. We live in such a sissy britches generation, it makes me sick. America needs to toughen up. Well, somebody said something about me. Oh, God bless you. Shoot. My dad's 84 years old sitting back there. If, if I'd ever come home and started crying because somebody said something to me, he'd have given me something to cry about. <laughs> he'd either say, dry it up, or I'm going to give you something to cry about. This is what you cry about, not that. The things that we allow to pressure us today and the things that people call stress amazes me. Hang on. This generation allows their social network status to stress them. This generation allows people that they've never met who are quote-unquote friends on social network, somebody's posted something mean or unkind or a lie about you, and we're so stressed out, we'll go kill ourselves. Maybe I'm getting old. No comments, Brother Scott. 
<laughs> yeah, but you're catching up. Uh, I, I, I may be from a different generation, but I never one time worried about what anybody else said about me. Not once. Uh, <laughs> folks <laughs> get all upset about cyberbullying. Well, my daddy taught me how to take care of a bully. My dad said, if somebody's bullying you, son, there's only one way to take care of it. Knock him on the ground, make him pick his teeth up, and he'll quit bullying you. If you get whooped, then you find an equalizer, a stick, or whatever. He said, the only way to back a bully down is to get in his face and back him up. Well... I don't get bullied around a whole lot. I'm not going around bullying anybody, but I've had people try to get tough. My Bible says answer not a fool according to his folly. Why should I get upset about it, let alone answer him? <laughs> I was, a couple months ago, I was opening Jefferson County Commission meeting and prayer, and there's a, a wonderful citizen in our county that uh, likes to protest preachers going there to pray. Well, he called me everything that he should not call me. He got within about two feet of my face and started cussing me out. And the, one of the police officers started to step out the door. He said, Pastor, you want me to take care of this? I said, no, everybody has a right to be stupid. <laughs> and that brought on some fervor, let me tell you. <laughs> on my way out, he, he had more words to say. You say, preacher, what did you do? I didn't even look back at the guy. You know, it's one thing to be a fool. It's another thing to open your mouth and prove it to everybody. Uh, I, I don't let that bother. You say, did that bother you? No. Why should I let that bother me? Uh, the next time I went, my wife was with me. And I thought, now, there, I, I'll take a certain amount of words being said in my presence but I already knew where the line was if my wife was at my side and he started. Now, fortunately, he didn't open his mouth that time. Now, he can say what he wants to me, but in my wife's presence, you're going to watch your mouth. That's the way it's supposed to be. There was a day when we did that. Now, unfortunately, most of the women cuss out people worse than the men did 30 years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm fixing to help you. This one might sting. Hang on. We, we, we have so much self-made stress. We stress out over adult children who don't succeed the way we want them to. Ouch. My adult daughter is here. You think I'm going to stress out about her and her husband and her child? No. That's their stress, not mine. I get to spoil him and send him home. I get to hold him till he gets cranky and say, here you go. I take till he gets a smelly diaper, but I haven't smelled anything in two and a half years, so I don't know if it's smelly or not. <laughs> this is the generation that stresses out over, well, we're not going to have grades in school anymore because we don't want a child to think that he's doing bad. Okay, I grew up in the generation, sorry young people, but when we grew up, you either passed or failed. 
And there were some that were so close that they had to take what they called summer school. We didn't call it summer school. We called it dummy school. Everybody else got to play while they went to school. You're dumb. Now, you say, that's not very nice. You're the generation I'm talking about. Did you know there were people that passed their schoolwork just so they didn't have to go to dummy school? Shazam, go figure that out. Did you know if you didn't pass, you didn't go to the next grade? Wow. I know somebody spent the best three, of their, three years of their life in third grade. It wasn't me. <laughs> now, hang on. We won't even keep score at a ball game for children because we don't want them to lose. Every kid in the world needs to know what it's like, bases loaded, bottom of the last inning, and strike out and lose the game for your team. Every kid needs to know what it means to face failure. You'll never succeed until you taste failure. One of the steps of success is failure. Everybody doing okay? And it's only failure if you never get back up to bat. Boy, that's good stuff. This is a generation that, uh, well, we can't make a child cry. Would to God my father had that philosophy. (laughs) See, when I grew up, it was, son, you can do it. Or you can get whooped and do it. You choose. Do you want the whooping or not? <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? You'll warp their psyche. He never called it my psyche, but he warped it a couple few times. <laughs> I didn't turn out too bad. <laughs> so, well, I, that's abuse. No, there's a way to do it in love scripturally. Yes. When you let your kids do whatever they want, you don't love your kids. Amen. People stress out over going to the dentist, going to the doctor, or taking their dog to the vet. People stress out over going to work, mowing the yard, or cleaning the house. Folks, that's not something to stress over. (laughs) I know preachers that have to take every Monday off because they're so stressed from Sunday. I was talking to a preacher a couple weeks ago. He said, how do you go to work on Mondays? I said, same way I go to work every other day of the week. He said, aren't you stressed? I said, no, I don't get stressed. I give stress. I said, you got stress going the wrong direction. We have people that stress out over the weather. Oh, it's cloudy. It's going to rain. Oh, it's so hot. I wish it was cold again. Oh, it's too cold. Now we got snow. They stress out over all the weather. I mean, if the if the weatherman one time says it's going to snow in December, you're already packing up food for December. People around here freak out over the weather. Good night. I remember the first snow day we got. It was in 1976. Shut up. <laughs> We went to school that morning and it started snowing and by lunch we had a foot of snow on the ground and they, they called our parents to come get us and, or called them and said, we're going to get the buses out. And it was the first time in my life at nine years old that we left school early. 
We had a blizzard and had 36 inches of snow in 24 hours. We went to school during the first third of that. Mm Mm-hmm. We got back-to-back blizzards the next year. It was so bad at the end of the driveway. You know where the snow plows come in and everything? My brother got up on top and went down this way. My dad shoveled off a layer in the middle of the thing, and he would shovel, put it in mine. I'd put it in my brother's, and he'd run it down at the edge of the road because we had no, you couldn't throw the snow any higher. I remember we couldn't walk out across the yard because you wouldn't see yourself anymore. It was so bad we had to dig out from the back of the house to even get the door open. Now, wait a minute. We still went to school through most of that. I can't believe that. Yeah, and that's why we don't sit down and cry because the Supreme Court made a decision. The law school at the University of Boston had to set up rooms for law students to cry because of the Supreme Court's three decisions last uh, two weeks ago. Oh, there's just so much stress over the fact that the Supreme Court ruled by justice and law, not what everybody else wants. They're training the next group of lawyers, folks. These are the lawyers that are crying about the law being enforced. That ought to scare us. King David had led these men and their families to defend the kingdom. Now their wives and their children have been stolen, and these men have lost everything, and they're getting ready to pick up stones and kill the king. I think he has a reason to stress. By the way, let me make a statement here. It's not really David's fault. But because he's the leader, he's willing to take the responsibility. Welcome to leadership. You take the responsibility of something that's not always your fault. (laughs) Or just blame it on Trump. Uh, Anyway, distress. What a misunderstood word. Most people call the wrong thing distress. My dad, when I was growing up, worked at the Canton Ford plant, and they forged steel for spindles and things. Uh, It was, they would take hot steel and big giant bars of it and these huge presses and machines, tens of thousands of pounds of pressure per square inch. They would load that up on a die, and that machine would come down and hit that, piece of steel a time or two then they would reheat it and move it to another machine and hit the other side those machines were so big and so loud and so strong that if you were standing at one end of the plant and one of those things hit the clothes on your body would go from the from the impact it was phenomenal that steel would be taken and put into those presses and that hot steel would be put in on top of a die or a mold. And that machine would come down and hit that. And it would distress the steel. In other words, it would mold it or shape something that was worthless 
into something that was usable. Distress means molding you into something that is usable. Distress is not there to destroy. Distress is there to bring strength and shape. Young people need stress in their life. I preached this about a year ago. We have raised a generation of adult children. We're teaching people to be kids, not adults. It's time to teach children to act like an adult, not teach adults how to act like children. Everybody doing okay? Hang on. You're going to get mad at me. Distress is not there to break you. It is there to shape you into something that is more and more usable. You don't want a pastor that doesn't know how to deal with your problems. Every once in a while I get a preacher calls me and all these problems. I said, what would you get in the ministry for? Why don't you go out and get a real job? Didn't you get in because people have problems? I didn't think about it that way. Quit focusing on problems, focus on solutions, let's go. Every once in a while I got to give them a little with the press, amen? Now, wait a minute. You don't want, when your loved one is dying, your preacher to show up and say, Ah, I don't know what to do. You're glad that your preacher has been through the distress of death and while you're facing the death of a loved one, he can stand there and help you and guide you through the process. Do I enjoy people dying? Of course not. But I'm glad I have the distress in my life and know how to deal with the distress because I go through it all the time. Two and a half years ago when my own mother was on life support and needed to uh, go to heaven and I stood here and preached her own funeral, can I tell you something? I was not in distress. Preacher, I don't know how you made it through. I made it through because I had been already formed in the forge and I knew what to do by the distress previously. And shielding children, shielding young people, shielding young adults from distress does not make them usable. They need the pressure of, of work. They need the pressure of school that pushes them. They need the pressure of deadlines and more work than they're used to doing. I don't know about you, but if you get your work done every day, you're not very busy. I've been busy for a long time in my life, and I went to go work for Brother Hiles, and he, he looked at me and he said, Son, I'm going to tell you something. Welcome to the rest of your life. There's never going to be a day of your life go by that you get it all done. He said, You're at a different level here, son. Whew, boy, was he right. Then I went, started pastoring, and it's even worse. You see, it's not comfortable. Being distressed. That shop where my dad worked was the dirtiest, nastiest place I'd ever seen. Hot. You got to take red hot steel. Put it up on these presses and 
These guys are staying there, and I mean, it's 100 degrees outside and 130, 140 in the shop, and they're working around it. My dad's worked on machines, and it was so hot next to machinery that they put a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood up there, and all of a sudden they go, and turn around, and it's on fire. Now, when it's hot enough to catch plywood on fire, it's getting pretty hot. That's what they worked in. But can I tell you something? There's not a one of you that drove cars 20 and 30 years ago that, was, that the front ends on Fords weren't stamped there. And the whole process was the same for all the automakers. They took raw steel and turned it into something useful. It had to be heated. It had to be shaped. It had to be pressed. But it made it to where it became useful. I want to show you how God tells us to deal with distress. God never told us to ask for the distress to be taken away. He did say, I'll teach you how to go through it. I can't take the pain away. Brother James of your wife, Miss Lily, passing away. But we can get through the distress. We can. Brother Ron can't take the stress away, the distress away of Stephen's opportunities but we can get through it together and that's my buddy miss I, I could go every 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 row i could tell you stories can i tell you something god never promised that there would never be distress but he did say i can help you get through the distress you see god never promises that there will be no pressure but he did say he'd show us how to shape it into something usable. Amen. Please listen to me. Number one, you need to face the distress facing you. You need to face the distress facing you. Avoiding it only makes it last longer. Running away from it only causes you to have to go through it more times. Not doing it makes you weak and useless. I'll be as sensitive as I know how to be. My wife and I have enjoyed for the last couple days our grandson. That little girl right there lost twins a little over a year ago. My daughter-in-law lost three babies. They were fostering and had three taken away by the state. Don't you think the distress of those situations makes facing what we have now that much sweeter? Do I want to go through it again? No. Do I want to talk to my daughter and my son-in-law about what they had to go through again? No. Boy, I can hold that little wiggly little worm and thank God for him. My daughter and son-in-law stood on this piece of wood right here in June, the year they got married. My son-in-law's dad started the wedding 
I walked my daughter down. He said, who gives this bride away? And I said, are you serious? No. Uh, <laughs> I did say that. Uh, and we switched places, had the wedding. Everyone's happy. Three months later, my son-in-law's mother got sick. Had a hernia that ruptured inside and died. I went down to preach her funeral. You think I wanted to go through that? You think I wanted them to face that? But can I tell you something? They got through the distress. And God's molding them and making them. As I stand here right now, my son-in-law standing in the junior church, preaching to a bunch of kids. Amen. Seeing kids get saved and their lives changed. His heart's broke. <laughs> I told him this morning. I said, son, you may not know it, but you're changing lives. When I was four and a half or five years old, a man just like you stood and preached and I got saved. I said, look what God has done because of one preacher. I said, you don't know the impact you have yet. Hang on. I'm proud of him. But it takes distress. It takes distress. Moving around before the pressure hits only misshapes you. One of those men put that steel up on that die and as the press was coming down and they moved it out of place, that steel had to be thrown into the scrap and remelted and brought back and be, go through the whole process all over again. Let's not move around while the pressure comes. Let's take it and get pushed into place. Amen. If we accept the pressure, though it may not be pleasant, though it may hurt, it will be over more quickly if you just do it. Amen. The sooner you face the pressure, the faster you can be usable. Let's quit trying to avoid all the stresses. The sooner we face them, the sooner we shape ourselves, and maybe the less time it takes to get through it. Amen. I wish you could sit on the other side of the desk and pick up the tears that I catch. Sometimes the, the counsel is not easy to say, we got to go through this. Brother James, I remember the day you called me and said, Lily's dying. Oh, I didn't want to go through it, but I said we'd go through it together. Miss Loretta, I remember when you called me and said, it's time for Jimbo to go to heaven. Miss Kathy with Miss Osi. And that little stinker didn't want to leave the house to die. The ambulance driver was there in the room to take her down to hospice. And she said, I'm done. And she died. She wasn't going out of that house. Now, wait a minute. I told you I can't fix it, but we'll go through it. So 
So we need the face, the distress facing us. Don't run away. Don't run and hide. Don't go away from the pressure. Let's just face it. Number two. <laughs> listen to this one very carefully. Don't listen to the doubters of the stress's possible outcome. Why do people not face distress because, well, something bad might happen if I do that? Can I tell you something? Don't live in the what if or what was world. I can't promise you what tomorrow will be. But I know who holds tomorrow. I can't tell you what will be tomorrow. But I know who will be tomorrow. See, I don't worry about the what ifs. If you made a decision based on the what ifs, you would never leave the house. <laughs> no names being mentioned, but I know somebody that's afraid to fly. <laughs> now, wait a minute. If I could fly from my house to here, though it's only a seven minute drive, I would do it. Amen. Give me my yeah, buddy. <laughs> now, <laughs> you say, but. Bad things happen if you crash. You have a, a higher possibility of getting hurt, injured, or killed driving to the airport yes, than you do flying. Amen. Now, don't get mad at me. I know what I'm talking about here. Now, the survival rate of a car crash might be higher. I'll give you that. But the number of accidents in an airplane are far less. <laughs> One of the last times I flew, this lady was... I think it was when I flew from Atlanta to uh, Dallas to preach my brother-in-law's funeral while Hudson was born back in February. This lady sitting two seats away from across the aisle from me, she was petrified. Oh, she was petrified. As soon as I plopped down on the plane, I had my briefcase open, had my Bible open. I was working on sermons and I was working on stuff. And she leaned over to me. She said, are you a preacher? I said, what was your first guess? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> She said, you seem so relaxed. I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, you're not worried about what if this plane crashes? I said, no, ma'am, because if I die, I know where I'm going. Amen. I said, I, I'm planning on preaching a funeral right now. I don't think God wants me to die for a preacher's funeral, so everything's going to be all right. <laughs> she kept looking at me. We hit some turbulence, Brother Bob. <laughs> And she said, do you see those wings going out there? I said, be glad they're doing that. She said, what do you mean? I said, that means everything's all right. I said, when they don't do that, it's time to worry. Okay. We landed. She said, did you ever even think about what we were doing up there? I said, no, ma'am. I was working on sermons. I was working on stuff for my church. She said, I knew I was going to be okay as long as you were okay. I said, same thing I used to tell my daughter about storms. If I get worried, worry. Until I get worried, don't worry. It's real simple. I said, ma'am, when they start telling you there's something to worry about, then start worrying. Don't waste all your time. Amen. You'll be okay, I promise you. You see, folks, everybody's a sinner. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. It should not shock us when sinners act like sinners. That's 
It should not shock us when saved sinners act like sinners. Did you know if you get saved, you're not perfect? Look, no nail prints. Everybody doing okay? I was trying to help a man that he quit the ministry. He used to be a, a headhunter revamping businesses. He'd go in and fire people and re, restructure everything. Tough. Got into the ministry. Somebody got cross with him, said some mean things to him, and he quit the ministry. I said, look, you'll do it for money but not for God? What's wrong with you? <laughs> His pastor said, that was rough. I said, he needs to hear it. He said, it reminds me of Jesus with the apostles after they quit the ministry after Calvary. And Jesus comes to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me more than these? More than these what? They were out fishing. He said, don't you love me more than fish and the money that the fish brings? I said, if Jesus said it to Peter, he needs it too. Everybody doing okay? <laughs> don't you think people wouldn't have worked in that shop just in case, well, don't you know working around all that steel and all that machinery, somebody could get hurt? No. But very few people actually really got hurt in comparison to how much product went out the door. Now, there were people that got hurt, but most of the time it's because they weren't paying attention. If you did it the way it was supposed to be done, 999,999 times out of a million, you weren't going to get hurt. You see... There was probably more people hurt and killed going to and from work than actually got killed at the plant. Guarantee it. More accidents going to and from work than actually happened at work. But see, we listen to the people. Well, if you do that, it might hurt. No kidding. It's going to hurt either way. Might as well get through it faster. I'm one of those people... I'm, I'm a real man. I hate doctors. I don't mind it for everybody else, but I don't want to go. My knee was really bad. I was working in Indiana, and I had torn cartilage in my knee. My office was on the fourth floor, no elevator, so I'm running up and down steps probably 30, 40 times a day, four flights of stairs, and on my feet 18 hours a day, 16, 18 hours a day, and it got so bad at one point in time uh, during uh, a week-long conference we had, I would be home for two to three hours, and my wife would put ice on my leg while I slept and work the knots out of my leg. And it finally got so bad, I said, i got to do something. So I went to the doctor. He said, we got to do surgery on it. we got to go in there orthoscopically and cut that thing and clean it off, and the bones need, you got so many bone fragments in there, we got to laser that off, and we'll get you all fixed up. I said, great, no problem. Can I go back to work? He said, sure. You could probably go back on Monday. I said, no. I had it done on Thursday afternoon. I said, can I go back tomorrow? He said, well, are there steps? I said, yes, sir, four flights. Is there a handrail? I said, yep. He said, as long as there's a handrail, you can go back to work. I said, all right. Surgery done on Thursday. Went back to work Friday morning. I was up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. I worked Friday, worked Saturday. 
Worked all day Sunday, sat on the platform, church platform, 7,000 seat auditorium, sat on there twice Sunday morning, Sunday night. Worked all day Monday, went back to the doctor Monday afternoon. He said, guess you can go back to work. I said, Doc, I already did that. He said, when? I said, I worked for, started work, back to work Friday. He said, you work Friday and today? I said, no, sir. He said, I said, I work Friday, Saturday, Sunday and today. <laughs> You've been going up and down steps? I said, yes, sir. How many times? I said, I can't count that high. He said, let's take unwrap this thing. Unwrapped it. He said, take a few steps without that. I did. He said, Pfft. he said, leave it unwrapped. He said, come back in a week. But he said, if you're feeling all right, cancel the appointment. He said, most people aren't willing to push themselves like you did. <laughs> Can I tell you something? I'm not about, I felt better with the surgery than I did without it. Now, I was a little... I didn't want to be put out. I wasn't sure what I was going to say under anesthetic. Can I tell you something? Sometimes you've got to hurt to feel better. Did the surgery hurt? Yeah, it hurt. But not as bad as it did without surgery. Now, wait a minute. Uh, it may hurt, but once you get through that hurt, it'll feel better. Avoid all possible danger. I'm not talking about being reckless. <laughs> you all know the statement to watch out for in this area? If you ever hear this statement, duck. Watch this, y'all! <laughs> Close your eyes and duck is all I can tell you. Not a good thing, amen? Uh, by the way, doing nothing will destroy you too. Amen. Build a building... And never inhabit it. Build a house. Never put somebody in it. Don't turn the heat on. Don't turn the electric on. And watch how fast it falls down. That's right. Well, I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> You'll mess it up by doing nothing. Amen. And doing nothing will destroy your life. That's right. Amen. Number three. Find what encourages you. When you don't feel like going on look at first Samuel chapter 30 again verse number six i love this and david was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved every man his sons for his daughters watch this but david encouraged himself in the lord his god it didn't say he called the psychiatrist It didn't say he called the psychologist. You do know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatric patient? One med. <laughs> One medication. That's it. Well, we understand man's psyche. When one sinner understands another sinner, you got more sin than you can deal with. How about we quit relying on needing everybody else to pump us up and we learn how to encourage ourselves? Now, I'm for you getting help and encouragement. But at some point in time, you have to learn to encourage yourself. Amen. Do you know what the word encourage means? It doesn't mean pat you on the head and say, oh, you're all right. <laughs> the word encourage means to put courage in. David had to learn how to put courage into his own self 
so he could lead the men to find their families and their children and bring back his own family. Sometimes, pardon me, you got to man up and just get through it. Sometimes you got to be a big boy or a big girl and say, it might hurt, but we're going to get through this. How do we do that, preacher? Well, make a list of things that encourage you. And I mean, sit down, write it out, write down things that encourage you. Maybe it's certain Bible verses. Maybe it's a song. Maybe it's a place that you can go walk and see certain things. Maybe start listing the blessings of your life. Maybe there's someone who encourages you. You just need to see their picture or hear their voice. Call them. Maybe there are certain photographs or or pictures that encourage you. You walk into my office and there's things in there that are pre-built that encourage me. I got deer heads in there. Amen, Brother Ricky? (laughs) I can have a bad day and look at that thinking, hmm, only a couple more months till bow season starts. I can get encouraged quick with that. Amen, Brother Scott? I can... Uh, spring comes around and I can look up and see those turkey tails and, and Brother Larry, I can get excited about that. I can get a little encouragement. Yeah, that gets you excited. Wait a minute. Do you even know what encourages you? Most people have never tried to figure out what encourages you. What encourages me may not encourage my wife. She doesn't get real excited about deer hunting season. She really doesn't get excited about turkey season, especially when I was learning how to use mouth calls. (laughs) Honey, can you leave the house to do that? (laughs) Amen, Jennifer. I gave Brother Aaron one of those one day, and she was ready to kill me. (laughs) It didn't sound like a turkey either. It was a turkey doing it, but it sounded like a sick goose. Maybe it's uh, you look at past things that you have done that are successful. Uh, In my New Testaments, I write down the names of people who get saved. I've got probably a dozen New Testaments filled with names, thousands and thousands of names of people. I've opened up the pages of that book and walked them down, showed them how that they were on their way to hell and showed them how to get to heaven. They bowed their head and trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Can I tell you something? You read through about 25, 30, 50 names and pass through and see all the names written down. That's enough to make you want to shout. It doesn't take me too long to get encouraged. Uh, Maybe it's, ladies, chocolate. Maybe it's Skittles or whatever. Maybe it's a cup of coffee. Can I tell you something? Maybe you find something and encourage yourself. Maybe it's past accomplishments. I have a couple files in my office in a certain place and none of your business where. But I have probably two files that are about that thick full of encouraging notes from people in my past. Every once in a while, I need a little encouragement, and I'll pop open one of those files, and I'll see a letter from Brother Hiles or from this person or from that person. And I miss Brother Hiles. He's been in heaven for 22 years now. 
I'll open a certain drawer and it's got a memo from him asking me to preach and uh, fill the pulpit while he was out of town. Or it just says, I love you, Brother Craig. Brother Hiles. It doesn't take me real long to get encouraged. It's like, okay, here we go. It's kind of like saying, sick him to your bulldog, amen? He might not feel like it, but when, when, when somebody says it's time to go, he's ready to go. Uh, maybe it's putting time into one of your hobbies. Ladies, maybe it's sewing or knitting or fellows woodworking or hunting or uh, shooting guns at appropriate targets. Uh, I have to throw that disclaimer in, amen? Can I tell you something? Maybe it's just spending time with your spouse or your kids or your grandson. That encourages me. Do something else. Can I tell you how to get out of your discouragement? Instead of wanting to be blessed, how about you become a blessing to someone else? Can I tell you what happens when we go through distress? We get very self-centered. Because all I see is the problem. And it seems like when we have a problem, all we do is put it right in our face. And we're like this. And we don't know how to look past that. Give me 60 seconds and I can tell this part of the story. The day I had to call the hospital and tell them to take my mom off life support. 40 minutes later after she passed, I had a family in my office planning a funeral for two days later. I left planning that funeral, drove home, and Mrs. Diener called me and said her husband had just passed away. I sat outside my own home trying to comfort Mrs. Diener, hadn't seen my wife, hadn't seen my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, my kids. I haven't seen anybody in my family about my mom's passing as I've helped Two other families. I preached a funeral on Friday. I preached Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, church on Sunday. I preached mom's funeral on Monday and preached Mr. Diener's funeral on Tuesday and church Wednesday night. You say, preacher, how did you get through all that? Because it wasn't about me. It was about helping somebody else. But your heart was hurting? Yeah, but as I started helping everybody else, I found out I had strength to get through it myself. And if you'll get your eyes off your problem and be a blessing to somebody else, you'll go back to find what was distressing. You'll say, where's it at? It was right here. Oh, there! it's not quite as heavy as it used to be. And it didn't come because you sat there and moped and cried about it, but you went out and you helped someone else. There's days I get discouraged. You know what I'll do? I'll go down to the store and just open the door for people. And somebody, oh, there's a gentleman. Thank you. I don't hold my hand out for tips either. Uh, I've gone to the grocery store and seen people... Uh, seen a senior citizen lady or a struggling older gentleman and say, hey, could I help you put your groceries in the car for you? I'm a Baptist preacher, don't worry. I don't work here and I'm not some creep. Shut up. Now, if Brother Scott did it, look out, all right? 
And wait a minute, I'll go do that and help somebody. Thank you, oh, my pleasure. And I go back to face the problems and I say, why did I think it was so bad? The problem was I was so focused on the problem and not trying to be a blessing to get the encouragement I needed to carry that burden. (laughs) Go cheer somebody up. Go to the hospital. Go visit somebody. Go find somebody in need. Ladies, go bake some cookies or a cake and take it to somebody. Your husband will eat it. Amen? (laughs) Very quickly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. After you've encouraged yourself, face the distress. Amen. Don't encourage yourself to run away from the distress. Amen. Don't encourage yourself and forget the distress. It's not a diversion to keep you from facing it. It is strengthening yourself to get through it. Amen. Have the courage and press on. Don't just encourage yourself and say, well, I got all the courage I need. Now I'm not going to face it. Wrong answer. Relieve the stress by going through it. Let it cool down and become usable. Many distress over eternity. I Knocked on a door yesterday and went into a home. Family that came to the tent revival. The man had been saved and he didn't know how to tell his wife even how to be saved. They grew up in another denomination and she looked at me and Brother Juan at the table and she said, Preacher, nobody's ever been really able to show me how I could know for sure I'm going to heaven. I didn't even ask her. I said, well, let me help you. I opened up that very book right there. I began to show what God said. Not what the church says. Not what the preacher says. What God says. I walked her down. Her husband was quoting verses with me. (laughs) I got to the end. And I called her by name. I said, would you be willing to do that? She said, that's all I got to do. I said, that's all you got to do because it's already done for you. I said, you're a sinner, right? Yes. Because we're all sinners, there's a penalty on sin, which is death and hell, right? Yes. Jesus came and paid that sin debt, not only to take your sin away, but to add righteousness to your life. I said, would you be willing to trust what Jesus did and that alone to take you to heaven? She said, I sure would. I said, I'm going to bow my head and close my eyes. I did. Her husband did. Brother Juan did. I led her in a prayer. She said it out loud. Didn't even ask her to, but she did. She got done. She looked at me. She said, preacher, something's different. I said, yeah, your spirit was reborn. I said, now you got something to go on. She said, you're right. Religion can't tell you that. I said, no, they can't. But the Bible can. It's not a matter of religion. Religion is man telling God what God has to accept. When we trust Christ, it's an act of submission. Romans chapter 10, verse number 3. For they going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of Christ. It's not a matter of what we do, it's what he did do. 
Can I tell you something? If you're not saved, get saved. This place, do it. Nobody's going to laugh at you. We'll be, we'll be having a glory fit. If you've been saved, how about you start obeying God? Maybe you need to get baptized. It doesn't save you. I can take my wedding ring off. I'm still married. It doesn't make me unmarried because I took my ring off. Thief on the cross died and went to heaven. Jesus said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. And he didn't get baptized. So it doesn't get you to heaven. It just makes you an obedient Christian. Now, wait a minute. Maybe you just need to get busy in the church. Maybe it's time to start getting active. Start doing something for the Lord. Maybe it's time to grow. Maybe we ought to get busy growing in the Lord. Hey, do you want to get through the distress of life? I just showed you what God said. It's God's recipe. Every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm done. Would you be honest with yourself? Would you be honest with God for a moment? Who'd say, preacher, if I died, I am 100% sure I've trusted Jesus and I know for sure that if 